Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anaesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. Have you ever dreamt of a career outside of anaesthesia? Perhaps a side hustle or changing careers altogether? Well, maybe you listened to my last episode with Sheila Hart, the president of the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists, and want to further your leadership career. Well, in this episode, I chat with Lisa Murphy, who's executive director from the Stroke Foundation, who started life with a career in anaesthesia. We talk about what it was like to change jobs, change careers and change countries. At the end of the episode, I'll share with you some of the activities that the ASA is doing to support international medical graduates who've come from overseas, as well as support leadership development in anaesthesia in Australia. I think there is more that could be done. So if you have any ideas, then please do feel free to get in contact with us. Shoot us an email on asa at asa.org.au. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to follow it, rate or review it. If you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, I think that's by scrolling right down to the bottom and leaving a comment. We're always looking for ways that we can improve the information that we share with you. Okay, let's get into it. And I thought if it's okay with you, I'd love to hear about your move out to Australia mm-hmm. and your early career in anesthesia and then your transition. I think that would be really interesting because I do get some people who contact me who think about a change and maybe don't know what's involved and what lies on the other side, like any change. So you originally are from the UK, yeah? Yeah, that's right. I, well, I wasn't born in the UK. I was actually born in Zambia, but I mostly grew up in the UK, the majority of which was in London, in Fulham. I don't know London that well, but I know there's a soccer team called Fulham. I used to live equidistant between Fulham Football Ground and Stamford Bridge, which is where Chelsea play. And I'm actually a Chelsea supporter, which is kind of genetic. Is it a bit like Aussie rules that you're just born into a family that follows a particular team? It's exactly like Aussie rules. I went to a soccer game in Barcelona. (gasps) Because they have the new camp. I saw Barcelona play the Glasgow, I think it was the Glasgow Rangers, and it was the last qualifying match to get into the European... Champions League? Yeah. There were a lot of Glaswegians in Barcelona, which was hilarious because I, I had as much ability to understand their English as I did the Barcelonian speaking Catalan and Spanish. You mentioned the Glaswegian accent. So I did my undergrad degree in Glasgow and I had even though I'm from the United Kingdom, I had exactly the same problem. I remember getting in a taxi the first time I got to Glasgow and I had no idea what the taxi driver was saying. And I'm sure <laughs> he had no idea what I was saying, but we managed to get um, to the university anyway. But it's a lovely, lovely city and they're amazingly fun people. And I, I do love Scotland. It's, it's got a little place in my heart. So undergrad was how many years? I did a joint degree, physiology and psychology. And in Scotland, they do four-year degrees rather than three, which is what they do in the UK. Is medicine postgrad in the UK now, like it's moved that way in Australia? It's very much going that way now. When I did it all those years ago, it wasn't. When I did my undergrad degree, I had no intention of becoming a doctor. I wonder if there was a a seed at, at that time about a future in anaesthesia. Yeah, maybe. It really hadn't occurred to me that that was something I wanted to do. You know, I was going to finish uni and get a job in the city of London, which I did do eventually, which actually kind of led me on my little path. I started working in the city of London. It was just horrendous 
didn't suit me at all. Very cutthroat, all about money, you know, not caring who you trod on on the way. So that quickly led to my first career transition. My best mate from school was just starting at Tommy's Medical School. And the more I chatted with him and hung out with his mates, I thought, well, hold on a minute. This is interesting. And it sort of combined the psychology, physiology that I'd learned at uni. And the more I thought about it, the more it seemed that that was the the right career path for me. So I then started applying to medical school. I didn't tell my mum and dad at the time, but uh, this was the time when, you know, the internet wasn't really a thing. And uh, you had to do everything on paper and all these prospectuses for medical school starting arriving at home. And mum and dad were like, what's going on, Lisa? (laughs) Is there something you want to tell us? They were incredibly supportive of me and I got a place at medical school and so started the next year. So that was really exciting. There wasn't much planning involved, but it just seemed like the right thing to do. Once I started medical school, I was incredibly happy. Were you one of many graduates or was it still very much minority when you went through? No, it was very much a minority. There were about five of us out of about 150 and I was also a bit older than them because I'd also taken a gap year between school and taught in an Indian orphanage and then you know had this year where I'd worked in the city of London for a while so I was even a bit more mature than your average graduate. What led to anaesthesia from there? So I did the normal you know house officer jobs and then I did a year as an SHO in emergency medicine. The thing that got me is When a person was in sort of a critical state and you'd make an arrest call or you'd call down the anaesthetist, I was always completely in awe of these anaesthetists that would come down, they'd kind of swagger down, cool as you like, and just take over. And everything they did, it seemed so amazing. They seemed so in control. And then they would bring their magic syringes out and somehow, you know, revive the patient. And I I just thought they were just the coolest kids on the block. So I decided to sort of investigate it a bit and got to go to theatre. And I love the, the camaraderie, I suppose, especially on call when you, you were doing emergencies and, and you could feel that need for teamwork because of the critical situation that you're often in. I loved the, the control aspect of anaesthesia, I suppose. There were so many things that I loved. That's probably why I chose it in the end. So at what stage were you in your anaesthesia career when you decided to come to Australia? I had nearly finished my registrar training when my husband and I did a fellowship year. We had our first boy, Kean. He would have been about three months when we came over to Australia. So I was on maternity leave and definitely my husband was doing a fellowship. Then we went back to the UK and I continued on my registrar training. He went as a consultant at Guys and Tommies and just got back into London life, but didn't really get back into London life. Actually really struggled to settle back down just because the lifestyle we'd had in Melbourne was completely different to the one we had in London. It was so crowded, so dirty, grey, trying to get on a number 22 bus with a pram was not an easy thing. The whole juggle with kids and trying to get to work at seven o'clock in the morning and all that. So we really didn't settle down, but we kind of thought Dex got a really great job. I need to finish my registrar training. So we kind of just got on with it really, as you do. And then... It must have been about two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, London time. And Declan got a call from Tony Costello, the professor of urology, and said, we need somebody to come and run the robot program at the Peter Mac. I've just had a very good lunch and we've got this donation to buy a, a robot for the Peter Mac and we need somebody to come run the program. And so we had a chat and we didn't really need to chat very long. 
you know, we weren't very happy in London. So we said, okay, let's go. It probably took about a year, 18 months to organize the visas and do all of that. But we didn't really think too much about my training because we were both so miserable and we just presumed it would be easy. That was an incorrect assumption to, you know, just pick up where we left off for me in Australia. But anyway, it wasn't that easy. But that's another another bit of the story. So in 2010, we packed our bags and we arrived in Australia with a three-year-old by then. There are so many things in that story that you've just shared with me. <laughs> where do I unpack it? We do a fair bit to try and support international medical graduates because it can be really hard to reestablish your career there in Australia. You hadn't got your ticket in the UK, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was nearly there. When I went back after the fellowship year, I was actually very lucky that I could go part-time as a registrar, which was unusual-ish then, but not not too bad. So that kind of dragged it all out. But I was almost at the, the finishing post, but not quite. You'd think it would be a safe assumption that you could continue your training here in Australia. What happened? We arrived and I thought what I would do is just get everybody settled before I, I started working and then started investigating how to get back into anaesthesia or if not anaesthesia, general practice. I, I was keen to, to get back in, into medicine of some sort, but there were definitely challenges. I don't think it's as easy as it used to be maybe 20 years ago where you could just slot in. Recognition of further training is not done on either side, Australia or, or the UK. And I would have had to have gone back to do some training. I looked at general practice, but then I really had to go back even further. And I just thought with a three-year-old, I can't do that. And the other problem was, you know, then I'd also have to go and train rurally. And, and Declan's position was at the Peter Mac. So we, we needed to live reasonably close to the city. I'm sure, you know, it would have been absolutely doable. I just wasn't prepared to sort of sacrifice the family aspect. And then little Finn arrived as well. So I had another year of maternity leave. And then when Finn was, gosh, he was only about three months old, Kian then developed type 1 diabetes. And I just thought that I haven't got headspace to go back into medicine. Uh, I just need to look after my family, which I did. But then Kian got bigger and he was at school and school were fantastic at supporting him with his diabetes. Um, and I started thinking, well, OK, what's next for me? So I, I got a position as a medical writer at a medical education company, which was very flexible and it didn't really involve the whole of my brain. I could do it very easily and look after my family. So that, that was good, but it wasn't really that challenging. So then I got a position at Kidney Health Australia, looking after their kidney cancer program. That was a good job. And that job evolved. Um, I sort of gradually moved up and up the organisation and in the end had 11 months as the, the interim CEO of Kidney Health Australia, which was a great experience. You know, I have no kind of management, no experience or qualifications outside of, of medicine. So I, I did feel like I was probably making up as I went along a bit. Did you have imposter syndrome? Yes. <laughs> I'm sure the position was well-deserved. So I, I went up for the, the formal interview for the role and because of imposter syndrome really did not put my, my best foot forward and completely undersold myself and did terribly uh, in the interview. But that's fine. It's all learning. And so they brought Chris Forbes, somebody who's got much more experience in the sort of commercial world. And then I moved on to Stroke Foundation, which is where I am now. 
So did you work with Chris Forbes at all whilst you were at Kidney Foundation? I did. So I, I stayed on at the organisation for probably eight months and we, we had a great working relationship, but I'd been at Kidney Health for three and a half years and, you know, I felt if I'm going to take this career seriously, I need to start that, move into a different organisation, see what it's like, learn from other people, hence the transition to, to Stroke Foundation. And at the same time, a stepping down from the interim CEO role, I then started an MBA. I want to come back and ask you about your journey because I know some people are, as I said, thinking about changing careers. And I wanted to go back and find out more about the medical writing job that you first did. How did you find that? What did you do? What was that like? I actually just found it on Seek. I was trying to think, you know, what could I do? Everybody thinks about moving over to pharma. You know, it's, it's an obvious alternative career for a medic, but it just didn't seem the right fit for me. And the medical writing bit, having written lots of research papers and and things like that, it seemed to be an easy and enjoyable thing to do. I was also keen to maintain relationships with clinicians. And because I was doing medical education writing, that did sort of allow that connection still. I wasn't quite ready to let that go. Were you helping to write things for courses? It, It was mainly for general practice. And we will produce RACGP accredited medical education, which would involve face-to-face activities. And there would be a specialist in whatever field it was presenting. But I will put together all the presentation documents and then also the related evidence-based fact sheets or booklets that go behind the education. It was a bit like pulling together a, a review article, I suppose, of the current state of evidence in whatever field that was. So now you're executive director at the Stroke Foundation. Yes. What does your role involve now? I lead the sort of, what I like to say is the most important activities of Stroke Foundation. So it's all the the actual mission related activities, which is all the stuff for consumers and all the stuff for health professionals. Stroke Foundation is very much founded on evidence and data. So we don't do anything unless there's the, the evidence base behind it and the data to support it, which is fabulous. So Stroke Foundation does the guidelines for stroke. So they're the first guidelines in Australia that are actually living. So they get updated really, really regularly, which is pretty cool. We also do audits. Every year there's a national audit. One year it's an acute audit for the acute stroke care. And then the following year it's a rehab audit on the the rehab hospitals. And that's really to look at where the gaps are in care and look at hospitals that are doing well. And then we present it to the hospitals so they can see, you know, areas for improvement and areas they're doing well. So that's a great, great thing. We also do health professional education. So there's a huge remit on that side. And then all the consumer side, all the support stuff, all the information. We have a platform, especially for consumers where they can connect with each other. We've got helplines, loads and loads of fantastic stuff. It's a big remit, but it's pretty cool. It sounds fantastic. And I I love the way that you said it at the start, that it's about the mission of the Stroke Foundation. At a certain level in these jobs, you start thinking strategically and you start thinking about vision and mission and you start framing your work around that. And I know it's an earlier stage in your career. You think of that stuff as a little bit of corporate speak. Yes. At some stage, you make the jump. So how do you think that jump came about in you? 
I was exactly like you. When I first started at Kidney Health, I hadn't really heard of the word strategy, mission, vision. You know, the journey for me was a very, very steep learning curve. And now it's very second nature. Part of when I was the interim CEO, we developed a new strategy. I felt like I was learning as I was I was doing. And now at Stroke Foundation, we are going through a fantastic process at the moment, looking at the future of health globally and in Australia, but also the future of stroke. And we have a couple of really key documents that we use for that, an economic analysis and what we call no postcode untouched, which maps out the picture of stroke in Australia. Um, And it really identifies where the gaps are and therefore, you know, what our focus should be for the next three years plus. I I love the way that you're using data, you're developing living guidelines, you've got something for consumers, you've got something for health professionals. If, say, there was going to be an equivalent activity for anesthesia, what do you think that might look like? Wow, that is a very good question. The past five years for me have been a bit of a journey on consumer involvement. When I first kind of entered into the the not-for-profit peak body world, hadn't really thought about consumer involvement. And now I see it as it's the first thing I think about whenever I do anything. And if you look at some of the Deloitte McKinsey stuff and the future of health, almost their first paragraph is the consumer will be at the center of everything. They are getting more and more sophisticated and more and more empowered. And if you don't think about them, you are going to get very lost. It's really hard for sure, but it, it has to be central to your strategy. But there, there is obviously evidence around using consumer engagement to improve outcomes from all sorts of things, and, and it will be an anaesthesia too. If we were to say translate Stroke Foundation's work into an anaesthetic organisation, is that doable? So you could definitely go down the path of living guidelines because anaesthesia has guidelines coming out of, out of your ears. And things change really quickly as well. And I don't know in Australia if you have, you know, audits of practice. It it does reveal, you know, for sure where the gaps are. But more than that, it allows you to connect the hospitals that are doing well with the hospitals that aren't doing so well and almost get a kind of a peer-to-peer support. You mentioned that you're doing an MBA. My husband's a director of a unit and at some stage we've both discussed ah. what the role of an MBA in a, in the midst of a medical career is. It's hard work. <laughs> yeah. It's a long degree, isn't it? So if you do it part-time, if you're working full-time, it's going to take me, I reckon, three years. What made you choose to do an MBA? Because there's other courses out there that are similar. There's executive MBAs. I know Seth Godin runs an alt MBA. So what is it about the classic MBA? So I had a look at the executive MBA. At first of all, I looked at public health and I thought that's too similar. I'm just going to collect another health degree. So then I thought about an MBA and I did look at an executive MBA, but I thought I haven't got enough business experience. I don't think I can start at that kind of level where a lot of knowledge is assumed already. And I'm really glad that I didn't because I'm learning a lot and what I am learning is really useful. I think without that sort of background in growing up in sort of a corporate non-medical world, the regular MBA was a thing for me. I chose Deakin because it's very health-orientated university and there is an option to carry on if you want to do healthcare management as an extra subspecialty afterwards. So I thought that'd be quite useful. There's also a College of Medical Administrators. Yeah. Did you look into them or are you part of them? I'm not part of them simply because 
that might be something that might be more useful if I then went into hospital administration rather than not-for-profit. And I'm happy in, in the world of not-for-profit at the moment. But it's, it's something I would not write out of the plan. Are there other professional bodies or organisations that you're part of when you're in the not-for-profit sector? A good organisation to be a member of is the sort of Institute of Company Directors, which provides a lot of you know information about governance and boards and things like that. And I suppose you know when I finish my MBA and I've got a slightly more time, I'd start to consider being a you know a board member of, of a small organisation to start with. So that's a really good organisation that I would recommend anybody. There are lots of boards that need medical experts on, so it's well worth that. And then for women, there's lots of groups that have women in leadership groups where you can get support and a mentor and things like that. So they're the other options. Have you been part of any of those groups? Only sort of informally, but Sharon and myself and the the CEO of the Heart Foundation in Victoria and another couple of women get together regularly just for dinner and stuff. They were very supportive of me when I was going through the sort of process at Kidney Health. Wow. What a great little power dinner that might be. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Board directors at the ASA do the Australian Institute of Company Directors course. It's a good course. So if you can't commit to an MBA and you need that sort of business experience from a board perspective, it's a really good one to do. What else do you think has helped contribute to your journey from a leadership perspective? Particularly at Stroke Foundation, having a mentor and a leader in Sharon McGowan, who's who's amazing, really. She gobsmacks me every day. And seeing how she manages or leads, rather, I've learned so much in the last eight months since I've been at Stroke Foundation from her. I think that's probably the most beneficial way to learn about leadership is from watching somebody who you admire and and is a good leader in practice. You know, you can read as many books as you like, but unless you see how it's done, it's not the same. I second Sharon McGowan. She's very, very impressive. Just going back to anaesthesia or medicine in general, do you think you'd ever go back? I'm, I've been out of it for, for 10 years now, so realistically, no. I kind of went through almost a grieving process when I sort of, it first dawned on me that it wasn't going to happen because I did really love it. But I think I've come, you know, I've come out of the grieving process and um, I'm really happy with the journey I am on now. And I think working at an organisation such as Stroke Foundation, I can have an impact on the sort of health outcomes of people. So in that way, I'm really happy that, that I found something. The leadership journey I'm on now is, is great and I'm learning heaps all the time through the MBA, but also through, through working and um, learning every day. So yes, I miss it. And if I could go back, I might, but my family is more important. It's a big sacrifice and lots of people make it around the world all the time. What do you think you miss most about medicine or anaesthesia? I think it's probably a number of things. The kind of the mixture of the intellectual stimulation, but the big thing is that that whole teamwork thing, you know, you can really feel everybody pulling together. And then, you know, at the end of a difficult case or the end of a difficult admission to ITU or something when the person's stable and you take that deep breath and think, phew, you know, we did a great job. I miss that, I suppose. I think it's one of the things that gives you that sense of purpose, isn't it, with mm-hmm. medicine? There must have been things that you didn't like, though. So what do you think you missed the least? 
I didn't like being up at night much, but then I don't think anybody does. That feeling of, you know, heading off to, if you were doing a night shift, heading off to work at seven o'clock when everybody else is kind of snuggling down for the evening, I, I didn't enjoy that so much. And I suppose the huge responsibility that you have when you take care of somebody, that's good and it's bad. It brings both sides. It can be incredibly stressful. I think even some other doctors don't appreciate the level of responsibility that we take on. Yeah, for sure. We're here to try and point that out. That's for sure. (laughs) Um, It it sounds like you are by far and away enjoying this career change and you're really not just enjoying, but really doing well and prospering and succeeding. What tips do you think you would give people who are considering it and maybe not sure where to go? I think talk to a lot of people. Talk to people who are maybe like myself, who have practiced medicine for a long time and then, you know, taken the shift. There are lots of lots of people like me out there that have gone on very many different paths, some of which use their medical experience and some of which have ended up doing something completely different. Make sure you take the time to consider, you know, your options. Don't, you know, have a bad day at work and then think, I'm done with this. It's a big commitment to change, so give it a lot of thought. Just talk to a lot of people, find out as much as you can about whatever it is. Are there any final words or anything that you want to say to people out there who might be listening? Well, I would say if anybody wants you know, to have a chat with me, then they can reach out to you and feel free to, to share my number. I'm always happy to, to chat to people, whether it's you know, deciding to do an MBA because they want to go into sort of hospital management or you know, whatever it is. I'm, I'm halfway through, so I feel like I'm in a good position to provide some balanced advice. Um, or whether it's somebody that wants to go work in the not-for-profit space or very happy to chat to people and follow your heart and your dreams and, and don't be afraid if you think change is what's needed. There are other options. Yeah, I do hope people do take you up on that very generous offer because I think one of the really important things with leadership is mentoring and often people are trying to find the right mentor but yeah. sometimes just having a chat with someone that's really useful. It is. It's always good to talk. I just wanted to say thank you for your time. It's been really inspiring talking with you. I'm sure other people will listen and find it really inspiring. You've made a huge sacrifice to your family, so I'm definitely in awe of that. So thank you. Thanks, Susie. Wow, so much to unpack from that conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed chatting with Lisa. We talked a little bit there about strategic thinking and it's very timely because at the council meeting held just recently, the latest strategic plan was ratified by the council of the ASA. So if you don't know what we stand for, it is that we have a vision that practitioners in anaesthesia, be they specialists, international medical graduates, trainees, GPs, are functioning at their best in the delivery of anaesthetic and perioperative care. That is what we are working towards. And how do we do that? That's our mission, what we do today. And that is support, represent and educate our members. So the ASA has also got a heap of resources for trainees, but also for specialist international medical graduates, such as Lisa. There's lots of videos that are available on our website on a dedicated page called ASA Ed. 
There's regular workshops, there's regular practice fibers, and there's also dedicated events that are only open for international medical graduates. But you need to be an ASA member to know about these and to have access to them. I suggest that if you are not a member, you contact ASA at asa.org.au to find out how you can join. I also wanted to point out that the ASA is also a not-for-profit organization, so sits in the same sector that the Stroke Foundation does. We also value director development, and so our directors go through the Australian Institute of Company Directors course as well as other courses as they come up. So if you're interested in being a professional citizen, engaging in the not-for-profit sector, or being a board director, then that is something that can also be pursued with the ASA. Finally, Lisa very, very generously offered to chat with anybody who is considering an executive career or undertaking an MBA. So if there was anything in this conversation that piqued your interest and you thought you might want to have a further chat with Lisa, then please do get in contact with us. And the best email is asa at asa.org.au. All right. In the meantime, stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the Free Music Archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>